This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, curators from the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco, Lily Siegel and Pierre-Francois Galpin, talk about their exhibition on inherited memory and art from generation to generation. They were joined by Arts at CIIS curator Deirdre Visser for a conversation that was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on November 29, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I want to um, touch on the question of truth and fiction. It's something you, you talk about in your essay, Lily. Um, our, our, our own memories in many ways are sort of notoriously suspect, right? For, and this has been proven over and over again in, in evidentiary contexts. Um, post-memory or inherited memory allows functions differently and has a kind of an interesting relationship to how history is written. Um, you write, Lily, history is composed of individual stories, first-person accounts, and second-person accounting. It is fictionalized, and that fiction becomes record. So I was struck by that when I read it. It's a powerful and disarming, um, but speaks to this sort of slippage between lived experience and the writing of history. And you go on to say, and, and perhaps we'll tease apart these two facets of the question, mem- if memory is personal, post-memory can be communal. Can you talk about the communal nature of post-memory and the role that fiction has in the writing of the historical record? Yes, that's a very big question. (laughs) We can tease them apart. We'll break it down. Um, I think I was interested in this idea of memory being unreliable. Mm -hmm. And part of that is how personal it is, that Mm -hmm. memory is really a single perspective. But once you get to a generation removed or not even speaking generationally, but you get to a point of view that is separate from the actual occurrence, there opens up a space to interpret and understand something that has happened in a way that maybe the person who experienced it cannot. And I think... I use the term fiction loosely, but as you pointed out, it has been shown repeatedly that memories are created (laughs) both out of action and out of our minds that, um, you know, it's been shown scientifically that in riots, people hear gunshots that never existed or witnesses are reliably unreliable. So what does it mean to take a step back and maybe hear different perspectives to form one that is maybe closer to the truth because of those different points of input? Right. So um, coming back to something you said, you spoke about the personal and then the communal, and it seems like there's a trajectory from the personal to the communal and then back to the personal. Um, Do either of you want to reach for that one? Do you mean in the exhibition? In the exhibition, and I think it's both in the making of the work and then in the reception of the work. But I think this is, um, 
it touches on, I think, how we receive historical memory and how we read history. So you have a very personal, individual experience that then in the post-memory or inherited memory context or in the art museum or the gallery become, speaks to a communal experience. Uh, and then it is received by the individual viewer and becomes something that I can enter as a viewer uh, and I can experience empathy. I can, it reaches for my own, uh, you know, it touches on something in my own experience and it, how conscious of, of that arc were you in the creation of the exhibition or? Um, well, when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I think all of the works in the show, or at least the ones that is in the first, maybe two galleries of the exhibition have that duality of, you know, personal experience and also community or communal history because, you know, right. some of the, um, artists really have that double perspective on the subject. And one example that comes to mind, and, you know, maybe the 24 artists could be some of the examples, but mm -hmm. the Bin Dan photographs, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's impossible to not think about his own biography and his own personal um, history. He was born in Vietnam and he had to, he lived there maybe for six or seven years mm -hmm. and he had to flee with his family. So uh, during, just after the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. So um, he always talks about how, um, you know, he, don't really, he doesn't really have memories of the place itself, but the only memories that he was able to create, and that's exactly what Lily was talking about, were through media imagery and depictions of the Vietnam War. And that was kind of his own way to relate in some way because his parents wouldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. They were maybe too traumatized or just was too close to them. Mm -hmm. um, so when you talk about personal and communal, I think this is one of these examples where um, he reappropriates this imagery that he identified with in a way. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's, and then the other work that's facing Bin Dan's in the exhibition is the work of Hank Willis Thomas. Mm -hmm. And I really, when you talk about community and viewer experience, really that one that comes to mind, it's, uh, I guess, not all of you have seen the show yet, but when you'll see it become clearer, uh, it's a mirror piece onto which Hank, Hank um, reproduced a very well-known Spider and Martin photograph of um, civil rights activist Amelia Boynton. She's, uh, the title of the piece is Amelia Falling. And so um, it's being printed that in the sense that you can see yourself while you look at the photograph. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, you know, when you talk about empathy, I mean, when you look at yourself, looking at that very violent photograph, right. all of a sudden history comes to your eyes and you can feel empathy, you can feel guilt, you can feel all different kinds of emotions, I think, while you look at yourself, you know, 50, 60 years later. Right. Lily, do you want to add anything to that? Or? I was thinking about Bin Don's work as well and mm -hmm. so many works in the exhibition use found photography and found materials and mm -hmm. textiles that really reference community and storytelling, different, again, back to fiction or history writing, but this idea of gathering <laughs> from everything around you. And then maybe the artist's job is to then... Um, you know, digest it all and present it in a way that becomes communal again. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think, this continuous back and forth and interchange. And 
what's the difference between seeing an image alone in a book or seeing it in a gallery with other visitors. Mm -hmm. You have your own personal experience, but you also are aware of being in a public space. So I think it's something that continues to shift mm -hmm. throughout. Right. Well, and you, as though on script, you've led me to this question of responsibility. Oh. <laughs> Quite serendipitous. Um, so we may inherit memories, and they might be the memories of parents, grandparents, or ancestors that are unknown to us personally. Um, and the memories can, can come to feel, in fact, like they are our own, though they are not. Um, and that comes with, as you've said, a responsibility. Can we, you talk about the nature of that responsibility to what and to whom are the artists responsible? And, and are we responsible as viewers? Sure, I think, <clears throat> well, we can go back to the title of the show and then uh, go from there and make it maybe more universal. But the title from generation to generation comes from a Jewish idiom, Lador Vador, which means that you have the responsibility to pass on tradition and history from generation to generation, lest we not forget is often how the phrase is ended. So I think the responsibility is personal, it is familial, it is all of these topics that we touch upon. Mm -hmm. And what is the responsibility? The responsibility, I guess, would be education, learning from history, learning from tradition, identity forming. I think one of the things in this exhibition that is kind of an underlying theme is this idea of how we become who we are mm -hmm. and the responsibility to ourselves to understand what that means. And That's to, where to start. Yeah, and to add to that maybe... Um, the idea of being responsible, that idea of responsibility. Some of the works in the show, um, the artist chose to give voice or to mm -hmm. represent mm -hmm. people or stories that haven't been read yeah. in history books or heard before. Mm -hmm. And I think of the work of um, Japanese artist Chikako Yamashiro, for instance, mm -hmm. um, which is a, maybe one of the most emotional works in the show because uh, she is... Um, reenacting or actually um, um, lip syncing or not lip syncing exactly to a testimony of a survivor of the Battle of Saipan in uh, 45. And so she is literally um, using his voice, his testimony, his traumatic experience, mm -hmm. but she doesn't speak. But you can say, you know, it's a very beautiful shot, just her head, and she's crying at some point. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I'm... I think that she probably had that maybe sense of responsibility in, in mm -hmm. that work of giving voice to these, um, that testimony and that past. Mm -hmm. And one thing, I think I wrote about it in my essay, but not only does she take the responsibi responsibility of giving this man his voice, but she does not take the voice from him. When the story becomes the most personal and he becomes the most emotionally distraught, mm -hmm. she stops speaking and his face comes through in the video and she gives him that respect really and understanding that though she can understand maybe, or try to understand the historical context, she recognizes that some things are just so personal that 
it is the responsibility for her to not try to take that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I was struck by that piece and, and that moment when he, his face emerges and uh, she stops lip syncing. What is the, so we touched on this notion of uh, fiction in the writing of history. Um, and one of the things that I think is complex about dealing with history in the present is the potential for nostalgia and myth-making um, rather than illuminating or making meaning uh, from history. Can you talk about, you know, as, as you were going through the process of curating this exhibition, discussions around mythologizing certain histories or um, uh, the relationship between inherited memory and, and mythology? Um, it's, it also depends on what's your definition of myth and myth-making. Mm -hmm. um, I think that mythology and myth is really talking about like origin stories or maybe stories that explain explain more than anything. And I don't think, I'm not sure um, the artists in this exhibition or the works at least explain necessarily history or like attempt to, but it's more about, you know, a reaction or a representation. And I think in the catalog, that's something that Abby Smith Ramsey talks about, that artists work in that realm of representation. So. And the connection to nostalgia, I think, is really important. And, um, you know, I can't remember ver verbatim what the definition is, but it's basically a memory of a home, but it's often idealized and perhaps fictionalized in one's mind. And so I think, again, going back to responsibility and thinking about myth and idealization and events I think it goes both way both ways positive and negative that there is the danger of recreate rewriting mm -hmm. history and fictionalizing it to fit your story yeah um, but I think that that is easier to I'm going out on a limb here, <laughs> but I think, I think um, that's easier to avoid in a second generation, again, because of this mm -hmm. communal approach and this way of trying to understand through more than just one point of view. And so I think, though the danger is still there, it's lessened, and there's maybe an awareness, too. I think that a lot of the artists in the exhibition talk about how they feel responsible to present something that is both personal and that is not traumatizing, <laughs> that there can be different points of access in a way that maybe someone who has been traumatized could not elucidate. I just had a further thought because you were talking earlier about that subjectivity and mm -hmm. how, you know, memories are very personal. And mm -hmm. even though they're not their own memories, like as defined by an event or something that they lived, um, all of the works are subject to subjectivity, I mm -hmm. think. And so that's something that, you know, when we were curating the exhibition, you know, we're talking about um, how we didn't want the exhibition to be a representation of all of the different traumatic events that happened throughout the 20th history, because right. first of all, it would be impossible. And um, it was really about, you know, finding 
artists that have just multiple ways of working with these memories and multiple mediums, you know, photo photography, mm -hmm. video, textile, we talked about that already. Um, and yeah, I think that it's very, it's not only a personal point of view, but it's also one artist's point of view on that history. And, and that's something, you know, I always struggle with, you know, history books, it's just, it's one version of history. Sure. And that's, you know, that's another idea, of course. And I think that um, presenting these subjective works of art, really, that's really what they are, mm -hmm. um, counter almost that, in a way, these, these narratives, while they participate in the narratives at the same time. Maybe that's ambiguity is kind of interesting, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about responsibility and subjectivity. The other, I mean, I think that there are a number of strategies that the artists employ. And, and one of them, I was struck by specificity. Um, that many of the artists touch on a very singular moment. Um, and I think about Hank's work, that, that moment, that, that photograph, that image of Amelia uh, Boynton Robinson, that something about specificity also uh, moves us past the kind of generalizing narrative that can become nostalgic or myth-making. Is that... Um, you wrote a bit about, mm -hmm. in your essay, about specificity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we talked about Hank's work already, but the other mm -hmm. work I'm thinking of is the one of Silvina Dermegardician, mm -hmm. uh, which, because, we, it, you know, she, she created two carpets, um, well, two um, floating carpets, I should say, made of um, photographs of um, Armenian families before the genocide, mm -hmm. and she... Um, with the piece, she the two pieces. These are very, you know, very large carpet, carpets that she um, knits around with pieces of wool. That's how she weaves through the different photographs, and she adds to that um, a uh, handout that you know tells who all of these people are. Because mm -hmm. of course, you know, you go through archives and you see, oh, that's the way she was working with these these um, photographs, um, putting a name on a face or even just a place where the photo was taken is that specificity mm -hmm. that um, not only is information, but in a way makes you maybe more empathetic or like more, you know, this is actually someone, just not an old photograph. Mm -hmm. you, you, do you know yeah, that? No, yeah. absolutely. So that's, yeah, one way. The other work I was thinking about when you said specificity, <laughs> which kind of complicates this idea, but I think in a very nice way is Mike Kelly's work, mm -hmm. which is one of his Candor series. And Candor is a series he started late in his life where he recreates, he creates sculptures of Superman's homeland, Candor. So the Superman myth is that when Superman escaped to Earth as a refugee from his planet Krypton. Mm -hmm. Actually, the capital city was saved by the villain, Kandor. And Superman was able to steal back his home birth city and keep it under a bell jar for protection. Mm -hmm. And in the Superman comics, every illustrator was given permission to illustrate Kandor as they chose. And so Mike Kelly very specifically went in and looked at these illustrations of Candor in the comic books and recreates them in sculptural form. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to reproduce what is the specific image, but there are 
40 to 60 specific images. And so again, back to veracity and fictionalizing, I think it talks, what does it mean to be specific in that context? Mm -hmm. We're going to come back to that question of, (laughs) of fiction um, and the inclusion of, of actual fictional narratives uh, in the exhibition. But I want to I move from the strategy of specificity to the strategy of rupture. And as a, an educator, I often encourage students to allow, for the ten, to allow tension in the piece because the tension actually holds the viewer in that discussion, allows entree, and, then, and um, keeps us there. Uh, and it's not a, a sentence that has a period at the end, right. necessarily, that you can readily walk away from. Um, so I want to think about rupture. And I, you know, the example I was um, inclined to use was Yamashiro's, the Chicago's Yamashiro's piece, because I'm, I was struck by two moments of rupture. Um, the first, when she opens her mouth and this quavering elderly male voice comes out. Uh, and then the second, when the syncopation is lost, and she is, her face is quiet, and the voice continues, and then his face emerges. So I want to just open up this question of, of rupture and how you see that functioning in the exhibition. I think it functions as a way to allow different readings. Mm-hmm. I think it functions as a way to both have a voice for the artists and to recognize that the viewer and the maybe the subject of their work also has a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about another one of Hank's works, which we haven't talked about yeah. yet, which is called What Goes Without Saying, and it's a wooden pillory that was used to humiliate and torture mm-hmm. people from medieval times through slavery and in front of the pillory is a microphone Mm -hmm. an unplugged microphone Mm -hmm. and Hank talks about making this work and how he often works with found photographs but he was finding as he was looking through all of these slavery images and civil rights images that the violence was really actually traumatizing him. He was feeling Mm. like he was living through these Mm. moments. And so I think, again, this sense of rupture, he felt his, the best way, the most responsible way to address these issues was to actually remove the human figure. Mm -hmm. And so I think the rupture also can lead to emptiness but that therefore leaves space for the viewer, for the artist, mm-hmm. um, for different approaches and interpretations. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you said, again, back to Hank's work, the mirrored image of a right. very familiar photograph, that we are then inserted mm-hmm. into this moment, into this historic moment, into this image that is so familiar. Um, and yet then there's the jarring moment where we enter the frame uh, provided for us by this really large mirror. Um, yeah, because you first look at the... Well, I guess it depends on it depends on the viewer, but I would experience it as first I look at the photographs and then I look up and I see myself. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one of these rupture moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Lily was talking, I was also thinking about how, you know, some of the works 
are really specific indeed to one specific village story, for instance. I'm thinking yeah. of Futine Gusseli's work um, and how um, it's, it is, um, in a way, almost hard to understand what the work talks about at first because you have to really dig into it. And I think that's also that moment of, you know, what you see and what you read into the label that we wrote, for instance, like to know about the context of, of a piece is also that maybe that moment that um, the aesthetic or the material draws you into the work mm -hmm. to then learn more about the history. And maybe that's always, again, going back to that responsibility, mm -hmm. uh, the responsibility of, you know, inviting probably or inviting the viewers to enter the work and to then unfold a little bit more about, you know, what the work is inspired by or what is, uh, what story does it want to tell. Right. There are, I, as you said that I am thinking of, of many artists, Joel Sternfeld does this with his, some of his works, but, but the series I'm thinking of, and I'm forgetting which artist it is in the show, it's those beautiful landscapes, but mm -hmm. then you, what you discover is that the landscapes are in fact toxic. Right. Um, and as I was in the, walking through the exhibition the other day, I was chatting with one of the guards about that, that very image, that very series, rather. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is uh, jarring and also captivating. It also yeah. brings up, for me, the issue of time. Mm -hmm. And that, so the work that Deirdre is referring to is by a Cambodian artist, uh, Vandy Ratana and their photographs of bomb ponds. So during the Vietnam War, the U.S. dropped close to three million tons of um, of bombs on Cambodia and left these craters in the landscape, which over time have filled with water. And they've been turned into rice paddies. Local farmers use them to water their animals, but they are still toxic. And what does time do to change these experiences? And then I was also thinking about um, Loli Cantor's photographs that are of Eastern European Jews in their everyday lives. And when you look at the photographs, they could have been taken in 1940, but they were actually taken in 2014. Mm -hmm. So this understanding of continuation and rupture and how they're not necessarily um, opposing one another. Right. Well, on that question of time, I want to um, move to tradition, which is um, one form that cultural memory takes. Um, and we often, I think, talk about, both on the left and on the right, in interesting ways, talk about tradition as kind of immutable, um, when in fact it is always in formation. And the piece that um, made this particularly vivid in this exhibition for me is Nicholas Galanin's uh, piece, Suhede mm, Chugas <laughs> um, that translates to. I wasn't even <laughs> going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we will again open this container that has been left in our care, which is such a beautiful metaphoric title. Uh, and in this project, Tlingit dancer Dan Littlefield dances a very traditional dance in a traditional costume in a, to contemporary electronic music. And that video is paired with another contemporary, with another featuring contemporary dancer David Bernal dancing to a traditional Tlingit. Uh, so contemporary dancer dancing to a traditional Tlingit chanting and drums. And um, which, which really, really brings to the fore 
that, that in fact all of these, none of this is static. Um, and so while this exhibition points to the past, we're also pointing to the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, this work by Nicholas Galanin is really striking in that way mm -hmm. of, and that's something that I'm quoting Lily actually from this, but I love how you wrote this in the catalog, that translation works in both ways. Mm -hmm. So tradition and contemporaneity also work together of, because, mm -hmm. you know, that work um, by Galanin is a dialogue, really, mm -hmm. between two different, or I, well, maybe not two different, but two different times or two different, maybe what you would think is like visually, you know, that traditional outfit versus the, you know, um, just dancing, contemporary dancer mm -hmm. outfit. And then mm -hmm. when you just switch the soundtrack, everything becomes different. And maybe that's a, that, the idea of rupture that you were talking about also mm -hmm. um, comes into play in, in there. Um, I think I forgot. I just wanted no to say something about Galen's work, but yeah. I think yeah. Henri Sala's mm. work functions in very much the same way. Can you describe? Uh, that, yeah, so this is a work that I think you probably know much better than me, so please step in. <laughs> well, please <laughs> but this is a very, very early work, maybe we done while he was mm -hmm. still in graduate school. And Sala is an Albanian artist living in, mm. where does he live now? In Paris. In Paris. Um, but he found old video footage of his mother when she was a teenager acting as a spokesperson for the young communists in Albania. And at the time that the footage was shot, the audio track and the video track were done separately. So the audio had been lost mm -hmm. and all he had was this video of his mother speaking at a big rally on behalf of young communists. So he brings this footage to his mother and says, you know, mom, what are you saying here? Do you remember what your speech was? And she has no memory of it. So the video that he then makes is his quest to discover what his mother said. And in the end, he's able to figure it out because he goes to a school for the deaf and has the students lip read what his mother is saying. And he comes back with the text and says, here's what you said. Well, it's even, he, he literally put the subtitles onto the footage, right. which is really, and that's a very rupture scene as well when she's mm -hmm. confronted with what she said or supposedly what she said. Right. Mm -hmm. And her reactions are, I've never said that. Right, How, that's not that's me. Not How me. could I have said that? Mm -hmm. And so, right, what does that mean that yeah. one forgets their own history mm -hmm. and needs to be confronted with it? And what would happen if he never undertook this mm -hmm. project? Right. One of the other reading of these works, you know, he adds to the video footages of Albania at the same time. And so, he also, you know, made that work talking about, you know, how you um, specifically um, relating to the um, um, USSR history and the Soviet history, how, you know, maybe she al almost didn't want to maybe admit that she was part of, um, right. of that system or that she was a, represent a spokesperson for that system. So it's, you know, at the same time, did she really forget or did she want to forget? And I think that's really what, why the work is successful in that way, because mm -hmm. it's ambiguous. 
Mm-hmm. We're not sure if maybe it was an unconscious way of repressing mm-hmm. memory or. Yeah. Right. So it offers us, yeah, productive tension there. Mm-hmm. But I, revisiting this idea that Galanin's work um, invites us to think about tradition as, as mobile, we were, or as not as static. Um, when we were chatting beforehand, I asked you about the inclusion of fictional narratives. Because certainly in this exhibition, though, as you say, you, you don't make any effort to touch on all of the tragedies uh, and catastrophes of the 20th century, but many are, many are on mm-hmm. view or yeah. at least um, referenced in the work. Mm-hmm. But then you've included a couple of installations that refer to fictional narratives. Can you talk about those inclusions? Yeah, um, it's, it was one of our ways to think about, you know, what will, there is history behind us. There's also history that's going to go in front of us. And so how are we going to think about it? How are we going to look at our present times from a future perspective? And so that last section of the show has different works that um, touch about these ideas. And one, the first work I can talk about is these two photographs by Radi Martino. She's an Italian photographer. Mm-hmm. And she traveled to um, the deserts in Tunisia um, into the ruins of the Star Wars sets of the movie from the, the original Star Wars movies. And these sets are still there nowadays. These are completely architectural forms um, made up. It's from fiction, but they're still there and they're still being used. And so she took very beautiful, simple black and white uh, photographs of a uh, homeless uh, man living in, or supposedly living into these structures. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, again, that idea of rupture and odd feeling probably mm-hmm. um, that you feel looking at is because you, even if you didn't know necessarily about Star Wars, these structures looks real in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of having a f- um, tangible, physical, architectural uh, work of fiction into the reality is really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can just think, you know, in 200 years, if alien visit the Earth and see that, or alien or any other form of living visit the Earth and see these structures, are they going to become a record of a pop- popular culture, a popular culture history, or are they going to become part of just human architectural history? So mm-hmm. that's then um, that work. But and on the subject of aliens. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I just, <laughs> just adding one thing to DiMartino's work, I think she did something very clever with the title, mm-hmm. which is called Beggar in the Ruins of the Star Wars. So mm-hmm. not Star Wars, the movies, but this global conflict. Global, mm-hmm. exactly, <laughs> a Star, Star Wars. Wars. Um, and I think... Fiction, as Pierre-Francois said, history is going to happen in the future as well. And how can we know what that is? Well, we know what that is by thinking about it through fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's a way maybe to disarm the viewer so that they're more comfortable thinking about today um, by trying to understand that even looking back takes creative imagination and looking Mm -hmm. forward does and looking at the present does. Mm -hmm. I think 
you wanted me to talk about Ellen Harvey's work. <laughs> um, I prompted you with the word alien. <laughs> I, I gave it to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ellen is a British artist now based in New York, and she was asked to by the Corcoran Gallery in Washington, D.C. to come and make a show for them. And she said when she arrived in Washington, D.C., she was struck by the architecture, specifically the columns, and as she refers to them in her alien persona, pillars. Mm -hmm. So what she started thinking about was how the colonial architecture here in the United States and this use of pillars really references and stands for democracy. Mm -hmm. But... In Europe, it does not stand for democracy. In fact, it stands for the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so what would happen if humanity disappeared and some alien beings came to Earth and saw these pillars? How would they interpret them when there's no cohesive definition or meaning now? So she presents this work as a alien souvenir stand in Washington, D.C. She creates a mobile, it's based on a hot dog stand that you see all over the mall. <laughs> and instead, it is um, a promotion for a tour company that has written a brochure talking about all of these columns that you've seen and the telepathic humans that lived in the water but communicated through these structures <laughs> that are built all over the world. And there's something tongue-in-cheek about it. <laughs> she really, I think, hesitates to talk about the serious underlying right. issue through humor and through fictionalizing because again, is removing it from the immediate trauma, it's easier to approach it and think about it mm -hmm. critically. And interestingly, in a, in a colonial America that was ambivalent about power structures in Europe, we certainly drew on yes. an architecture of power, yes. um, which we see in you know democratic in governance, uh, yeah. but we also see in plantation homes. And exactly. See. So the lack of fixity in the meaning of, of that right. structure is really rich terrain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about curatorial practice, and okay. um, <laughs> and so when when we curate, we think about taking a viewer on a journey, and I. And there's, a, there's perhaps a chronological journey, but there's also, I think, a conceptual and experiential journey. Can you talk about the questions you were asking yourselves as you selected these artists and, and thought about the space? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, it's a journey through time. I mean, that's really what the way we've been thinking about um, maybe the sequence of the works. We both... Um, uh, didn't want that sequence to be explicit and to be that, you know, we grouped some of the works thematically or, you know, we start with works by Christian Boltanski, Bindan and Hank Willis Thomas that uses um, found photographs and that really talks about more collective memories. That's really what the way we were thinking about that maybe first room. And as you move into, you get into more specifics in a way uh, and into more... Um, both stories that relate to a specific community 
uh, think of the work of Demer, uh, Sylvina Dermakadichian, the Armenian community, for instance, and like these photos of families. And as you move along, you're going through again, uh, um, through more personal and also uh, memories that directly relates to the artist's own family members and ancestors. Mm -hmm. And then as you move, you kind of go back to that idea of collective. Uh, and that's where the weird part of the show starts, where the collective is not only about collective past and history, but mm -hmm. the collective future. And that's really where maybe that's that's one way to look at this at this and I'm doing this gesture as I move along. <laughs> but this is where you go through the through the galleries. Um, but um that's one of the journey, yeah. But then you know, as we curated the show, we've had, I don't know, maybe ten different floor plans of the show mm. as we're thinking about ways to, you know, make the narrative not too linear, but mm -hmm. in some ways um still, you know, getting you from one grouping of artists to another. Definitely new insights arise during the layout of the exhibition. And then after works are put together, mm -hmm. you see incredible connections that you wish were intentional. <laughs> you just pretend. <laughs> exactly. But in, you know, the first step is selecting mm -hmm. the work and making the checklist. And we started out, I don't think we talked about this yet mm -hmm. tonight, but Pierre-Francois had been reading Marianne Hirsch and I had taken a trip to Israel and I had done a number of studio visits and recognized this interest in really the Holocaust. It was Israel and all of these young artists who had grandparents who had come to Israel during the war, but they didn't they were supposed to know so much about this history, but they didn't because no one was talking about it. And mm -hmm. so they were using their practice to try to understand what had happened. Mm -hmm. And we shared an office <laughs> at the time and we just started talking about these ideas and then naming other artists that we had seen that were working through these ideas not related to the Holocaust. And then we really just started following the artwork and the artists and certain themes and practices started to emerge. The found photography, textile work, mm -hmm. video, and embodiment um, of these stories. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we thought about pairing things into these strict categories, but then we would discover another artist that was making great work that didn't fit into one of those categories. Mm -hmm. So in the end the curatorial process came down to making choices, yeah. but also trying to make the exhibition as holistic as possible and mm -hmm. trying to include an international roster of artists, mm -hmm. um, as is always the case working on exhibitions. We had some really great works that unfortunately could not be included in the end. And right. so, of course... That changes history. Yeah, exactly. You know, we wrote a very specific history. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think mm -hmm. starting with the selection and categorize, there are so many different categories that can emerge in this show. And one thing that really struck us, I think, in putting it together was that the approaches from artists that were working, you know, halfway across the globe still had something so familiar and similar between them. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's something that really comes through the show is that idea of, you know, dialogues between all of them um, is what makes the show. Because, you know, it's also that process. It's we, We've been working on it for two years and it started with, you know, research, studio visits, readings to then putting together the catalog. And I think when we put together the catalog, that's really when I, I think we realized, you know, how these works could be in dialogue together. Mm-hmm. Then seeing it in the physicality of the exhibition space mm-hmm. definitely brings these similarities and differences and dialogues between them. So, um, yeah, and Lily's right in saying that, you know, some of, we had some other works that we, wanted to put in the show that didn't make it and what, how different would that have been? And that's, that's one of the realities of curating too. I mean, sometimes some of the works don't make it and some other. Of course. We are running a bit out of time. So I want to talk about the present and I want to talk about this exhibition in this time, because certainly you started this months and months ago, um, but it seems very timely. It seems apropos our current moment post November 8th. Um, in which many voices, so empowered by the outcome of the election, um, point to, just as one example, the internment of Japanese-American citizens as a model to repeat rather than to repudiate. Um, so I think about how tragically ahistorical uh, U.S. mainstream culture can be. Can you both talk to the what this exhibition means in this moment to you, what conversations do you hope to catalyze? How do you think about the audience for this exhibition and how, um, what strategies have you thought about to, to expand the audience for these questions? It's, it's certainly, you know, this exhibition has always felt timely in a way, mm-hmm. um, to us at least, in the sense that it's, it was really an effort from us to include as many different voices as possible and different mm-hmm. memories, different stories, different communities, etc. The list is very long. Sure. Um, so I think that is, you know, maybe a concern also in our own curatorial practice and the way we think mm-hmm. about exhibition making. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly um, post the election and the way, you know, some of the um, other countries in the world is going are going. Um, I have a very specific example of Ellen Harvey actually came to install her piece Alien Souvenir Stand, and it was literally two days after the election. And I also thought she would not be able to make it. I don't know, for whatever reason, I thought maybe, you know, the show is not going to happen. Something's going to be not happening. And we were putting her piece together, and her piece um, has... um, different representations of buildings in Washington, D.C. in ruins. And Mm. in some ways, you know, it was sort of a funny tongue-in-cheek, but also desperate representation of what the future might look like. Mm -hmm. And so this is, again, you know, exactly what Lily was saying, through the lens of fiction and humor, maybe is one of of the way to cope with what happened, or at least to Mm -hmm. uh, work through it. So that's, that really... It, we were installing the exhibition while all of this was in our in our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the selection of the works wasn't, of course, in preparation of this. But in the end, and I think that's what the show also talks about: is context is everything. Mm-hmm. Context, historical context, present context makes you read, see, hear, listen, or um, view 
works of art and exhibitions differently. Absolutely. Um, so certainly does. <laughs> yeah, that was very well said. I think going back to the title too, and this idea, this mm -hmm. Jewish idea that is also, I think, more universal, but from generation to generation and this responsibility of continuing to talk about things. And as you were saying, this idea of looking at art in the conversation that it engenders and mm -hmm. sharing ideas is really important. And that also the openness for lots of different ideas to be brought forward, but then the responsibility to be watchful and to learn from the past. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I think, and again, this is, we've always thought this exhibition is very timely and that we can't forget that horrible things really are happening around the world all the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also really great things are happening and people are surviving and people are coming to new understandings mm -hmm. and that we just have to remember this and keep practicing this. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you both, um, thank Lily you. Siegel and Pierre-Francois Gapin. We've been talking about From Generation to Generation on view at the Contemporary Jewish Museum until April 2nd, 2017. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.